New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Wisdom traditions and rituals of women mystics have been woefully neglected in both literature and in practice in most of the world's major religions. However, there is a fierce and highly informed advocate for the feminine mystical experience with its emphasis on the value of relationships, feelings, and mutual empowerment over individual success. And that person is our guest today, Maribai Starr. Today she'll be taking us on a special tour of our holy connection to Mother Earth, Divine Mystery, God the Mother, and the many female saints, both present and historic. Maribai Starr has taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico, Taos, for 20 years and now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and the interspiritual dialogue. She's a certified bereavement counselor and travels the world speaking and giving workshops on contemplative practice and the teachings of the mystics. Her books include such critically acclaimed translations as Dark Night of the Soul, St. John of the Cross, the Interior Castles, St. Teresa of Avila, Devotion, Prayers, and Living Wisdom, a six-volume Christian Mystics book series. She's also the author of God of Love, a Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. Join us for the next hour as we explore a passionate spirituality through the lens of the feminine with our guest, Maribai Starr. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Maribai, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's wonderful to be back with you after several years. Exactly. It's always wonderful to sit across from you and to be immersed in your work and uh, this most recent work, Wild, Wild Mercy. And I would love for you to start by telling us what was the impetus for this book? What, what made you decide to sit down and write yet another book, mm. but this one in particular? All my books have been invitations from different publishers who just sort of track what, what I'm doing and say, hey, how about this? You know, come up with an idea. I feel very blessed in that way. Um, I also feel sometimes stuck in a little 
gilded cage, you know, by virtue of the fact that I'm invited to do other people's book ideas. Uh, and yet every time I say yes, when I really allow that inner wisdom to be my guide to discern what to say yes to, if I get that yes, my whole heart and all my creative energy are poured into it and it definitely becomes mine. It's more true with this book than maybe any other book I've ever done in the sense that as soon as I receive that inner permission to explore the feminine wisdom voices in all the world's religions, it just opened up this incredibly beautiful world for me. And that world was hidden in plain sight underneath the inner layers of all the world's great wisdom traditions that I've spent my life immersed in exploring through study and through practice. You know, that's what I do. I'm an interspiritual being who has been gleaning and, and drinking the nectar of all the world's religions for my whole adult life and never realized until now um, the, that there was this whole hidden realm of women's wisdom and that it really was time to bring it up. And what I love about this book, you bring in the, the saints and the many feminine mystics. You yeah. know, you talk about uh, your namesake, Mirabai, or Shakti, or Kali, or uh, Julian of Norwich, or Teresa of Avila, or Hildegard of Bingen, or Mother Mary. Or, but you also, what I love, interspersed in, the, in this whole volume are what I call uh, present-day saints, mm -hmm. is what I'm calling them. I don't mm. think you actually call them in the book. It's sort of inferred. These are women who are fierce practitioners of feminine wisdom that goes to the deep wisdom of spiritual tradition, mm -hmm. but it's bringing it in a feminine form. And I'd love for you to say something about maybe the difference between the masculine form of spirituality and the feminine form. It can be blurred, but if we could just kind of state it in, in a little bit of that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really important and relevant question. And especially, Justine, when we, when we remember that we all contain in our souls and psyches, both masculine and feminine, and the entire spectrum in between. And so what we're really talking about here, when we speak about these feminine attributes in religion and spirituality, we're speaking of that feminine sensibility in all of us, people of all genders. So given that, I would say that these feminine spiritual values, well, let's talk about, you said first, the masculine. The masculine spiritual values are very much about order, um, prescribed belief systems, rituals, liturgies. Uh, it's also very much about transcendence. You know, the masculine, it's like that vertical phallic kind of energy of blasting up and out. And... There is an emphasis in all of the world's religions, which were built by and for men, on leaving this world behind, that seeing this world is an illusion to be transcended, seeing the body as a limitation that needs to be purified, seeing the ego and the personality as problems that need to be perfected, 
you know, that endless self-improvement project that so many of us have been conditioned to engage in and, and which is constantly thwarted by virtue of just being human beings. <laughs> um, so all of that, it's about transcendence. It's about perfection, purification. It's about rigor and order. It's about asceticism and um, giving up. You know, the, yeah. So the feminine is much more inclusive and affirming of things as they are, of us as we are. That spiritually speaking, we're not too much and we're not not enough, which is the thing that most women I know walk around feeling. We're either too much or not enough, or if you're like me, both at the same time. <laughs> and the feminine is about embodiment. It's about incarnation. It's about blessing every particle of being as holy, as sacred. That this is the place where spirit enters matter and renders everything uh, holy and everything, uh, everything is part of the expression of the presence of the divine. And so our bodies are not these problematic objects that need to be um, yeah, left behind. They, they are included and they are welcome as the vessels for, for the sacred in this world. As you're speaking, I'm remembering something that maybe I read somewhere or, or someone spoke something about how uh, the angels or maybe the invisible world is cheering us on because in a physical incarnation, we're able to do things that can't be done in any other incarnation. Yes, do you know I, what I'm talking I about? I am familiar with this. It's, it's, um, I think it's in both Judaism and Islam that there, it is said that the humans are the highest form of creation because even the angels have no will actually they can only do what they're told you know what they're what they're designed to do or as humans can grapple and wrestle and make it ours and that there are ways that we can manifest the holy in the world that right the so angelic beings cannot in that way then what you're saying about trying to then get out of this physical incarnation maybe goes against the grain of what we're here for. Right. Would that make sense? So it totally makes sense, Justine. That's very insightful. And it, and it reminds me of, I think it's a Buddhist um, legend about the world. It's as if the world were made all of water and there is a tortoise that is swimming around in that, in that world of ocean and she surfaces and her head goes through a ring that happens to be floating on the surface of this entire globe of water and that's where she emerges and that's how precious a human birth is. Oh, I love that image. Yeah. I love that image. I would love to talk about, there's something that's very, very popular right now in spiritual circles and it's the work of um, non-dualism. And a lot of people are practicing it. It has a lot of beneficial ideas and, and practices. And you talk about it in a certain way. And I think I, it really popped for me when I read what you were talking about in non-dualism. 
there can be a way that we can become non-dualist fundamentalist. I'm, I'm, I'm using that word. Yeah. I'm saying we can be fundamentalist, like we can be really rigid in our idea of non-dualism. I would love for you to talk about non-dualism and how you view it. Yeah, I think that when any of us who engage in spiritual practices experience at least fleeting moments of unitive consciousness in which we experience all that is as a kind of undifferentiated field of being. Um, you use the word idea, and I think that's the issue here, is that non-duality or non-dualism, which comes from the Advaita Vedanta tradition of Hinduism, is a particular school of, of thought. It's a philosophical tradition that asserts that Reality is fundamentally not two. It's not so much that it is all one. It's a slight nuance on, on the understanding that everything is connected and all is one. It's more that any notion that we might harbor of ourselves as separate from divine reality is illusion. I totally buy that. Mm -hmm. And I have experienced that in, in states of deep spiritual practice, kirtan, chanting, meditation. I've experienced it in making love. I've experienced it in watching a, a baby born. I've experienced it in sitting at the bedside of a beloved who's taking his or her last breaths. So there are this is our birthright, is to experience these non-dual states. However, there is this movement, you're absolutely right, and it's very popular in the United States and in the Western world in, in Europe as well, in which people are adhering to this philosophical system and becoming very rigid around it. So we're going to talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Mirabai Starr, the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. And if you want to know more about our work, you can go to our website, Mirabai Star. And she spells her last name S-T-A-R-R. -R. There are two R's. Maribystar.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mirabai Starr. She is the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. And we're talking about non-dualism, and we're talking about the popular spiritual path right now in the U.S. and maybe also in Europe. And uh, so you were going to say more about that. 
So, yeah, as a path, as a spiritual tradition that people are are practicing, there is quite a bit of rigidity around this notion that since reality is not two, since we are not separate from God, let's say, let's use the G word here, um, then anyone who professes anything else is in is walking an inferior spiritual path and is at a lower level. In other words, there's this understanding they in the non-dual movement that any other way is spiritually immature and right. inferior. Right. For instance, the bhakti path or the devotional path. You know, that's Mirabai, my namesake, the 16th century <laughs> ecstatic poet, was all about longing for Krishna, for union with, with the god of love, Krishna. And her poetry, her ecstatic love poetry, is among the greatest treasures of the spiritual canon, like the poetry of Rumi or Hafiz. And or maybe Song of Solomon. Or Song of Songs. <laughs> exactly, yes, Justine. That's a wonderful yeah. example. So why is it that these ecstatic love poems and all the spiritual traditions sing to our souls so profoundly? Because something in us does feel separate from the beloved, from the source of all love. It feels to me like love is what's missing in the rigid, fundamentalist, non-dual arena. Right. Now, I think that's changing. I have spoken at the Science and Non-Duality Conference a number of times, and they're deeply heart-centered beings who are hungry for the mystics as well. I agree with you, and I've had some conversations, and I believe it's opening up. And I, you tell a wonderful story of woman, uh, Miranda McPherson, who was uh, rigidly following non-dualism, and she had a profound opening. Do you, can you recall that? Yes, and it was. I think it was while meditating in Ramana's cave, Ramana Maharshi's cave in India, where she really heard that deep non-dual teaching inside, reverberating inside her own being, saying that really there, there is nothing, you are not separate. And then she went into this for like a couple of years, I think, this kind of um, altered state of non-dual consciousness, and she just was abiding in that. Her whole life kind of fell apart because she was in this undifferentiated state of consciousness. And she remained that way for quite some time and kind of living in a liminal space when everything fell away. And one day she was, this happened in, in India and she had been living in Europe and then she was back in America and she was running through the woods, you know, doing a run, jogging, I suppose. And all of a sudden it was like the, her heart just broke open and the love came flooding back in. I think of Teresa of Avila who had a very similar experience at the age of 40. I think Miranda might have been around that age too, where her life had been, her spiritual life had been very dry, very mature, very responsible, but very empty. And then Teresa of Avila also at had a momentary experience, do you remember this, where she was just walking through the hallway of the convent and saw a statue of Jesus and kind of caught his eye and noticed this this quality of unconditional love. 
and also suffering in him, in his countenance that just broke her open. And that's when all of Teresa's mystical experiences came flowing in and changed everything. And Miranda's experience was similar. It was like the floodgates opened and this sweetness came rushing in. And she spontaneously began to chant, um, Hare Krishna, Hare Ram, I think it was. And, and all of a sudden, there was no meaningful difference between the non-dual path and the path of devotion. They so, merged from the head to the heart. From the head down to the heart, oh. to the center of the soul. So And I, the body. I, and the body. It's the center. Soul, body, all of it. Yes. It's right there. And that heart, we've learned from like heart math and other science-based uh, thought and research, is that the heart has an intelligence. Yes. Exactly. And I think that's what's been missing in the mindfulness movement in many ways in, and in several other Buddhist arenas and, and in the non-dual path is the heart, is feeling, is body, is poetry, is the feminine. And I'm thinking of your own story, too, Mirabai, going back to uh, your story that You've told in other books, and now you you repeat a little bit in here. It's not the emphasis of the whole book, but you mention your profound change that happened when your beautiful young daughter passed away suddenly in a car accident. And in in this book, you, you describe... First of all, that grief doesn't have a timeline. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have an expiration date. That And then people, we get impatient sometimes with each other, and we say, oh, they should be over it now. And you talk about some years after her death, you were in India, and you were with uh, Mataji, who inherited the work of Neem Karoli Baba, the famous guru of Ram Das and Larry Brilliant and others. And um, you had a profound moment with her. Mm. Can you describe that? Yes. Um, so Neem Karoli Baba is my guru, and uh, he, he has been a lifelong presence for me. And Jenny and I, my daughter and I, had always planned to go to India together when she graduated from high school. And she was killed in a car accident the first year of high school. So I promised her that I would still fulfill that dream together. And it took me a long time. So she died in 2001. And in 2010, I finally made my way to Kenshi Ashram in the foothills of the Himalayas where Maharaji was and where Sri Siddhima Mataji uh, was still living. She just died a year ago, by the way. The end of December of 2017. 17. Yeah, just almost 2018. Mm -hmm. And so... I went to see her. She had invited me when Jenny died, and it just took me that long to, to get it together to go. And so it was the ninth anniversary of Jenny's death when I was there at Kenshi Ashram. And Mataji, there was something about being in her presence. She is the, she was, and still is, if you believe in these things, which I do, the essence of feminine wisdom. She was fierce, and she was also unconditionally loving. And she just took me into her arms, so to speak. She didn't physically embrace me, maybe a little, but mostly it was that she just made herself fully available to me. She looked at me, she, I, she saw me, and I felt seen in a way I've never felt before. I spontaneously prostrated at her feet. 
even though philosophically, growing up in an in an agnostic Jewish family, that's like not not my first impulse, and yet the devotional um, response that she generated in my heart just by being in the field of her presence dispelled all my opinions on the matter, and I just took refuge at her feet in such a way that uh, it changed everything. And I will always feel now that she is part of my spirit team. It's like, Justine, that's what I noticed with this book, writing this book. It's like gathering my girls. You know, all of these mystics and saints of times past, all of these goddesses from across the spiritual traditions, and all of the people that I love who have died. It's like my daughter, when she died, became my ancestor. And she's now part of that spirit team that holds me and guides me. And Mataji is very much uh, part of that. I love that idea of a spirit team. And that also takes me to the idea you, you spoke about growing up, this Jewish tradition, and also all the paths that you have participated in throughout time. I mean, you really have done a lot and, and dipped into the well of many wisdom traditions. And so some people would say, oh, Maribai, you're just a dilettante and you're just wandering around from this one to that one and it doesn't mean anything. And I want to read something from your book that just blew my socks off because I, this is a quote from the book. And when you're talking about following many paths and, and being tagged as a dilettante and, and they even, you know, people are saying, oh, well, you're, she, you're not going deeply. You need to do one path. And here's what you say. You say, as if your polyamorous spiritual proclivities render you a dilettante, they will mistakenly judge your way as superficial and undisciplined rather than as the mind-blowing, heart-openingly, soul-transfiguringly rigorous spiritual practice that it is. Mm. I love that. So I loved it that you're saying just because you're pulling wisdom from different wells doesn't mean that you're not rigorous in your practice. That's right. So please uh, comment on that if you would. Yes, I'd be happy to. And I've spoken a lot about this in, you know, in interviews and in print, um, that I had a kind of awakening around that when, um, I don't know, right around the time I was writing God of Love, that the message I'd received my whole life on the spiritual path, and I started on a serious spiritual path at 15, was that you have to pick one tradition and go deep if you really want to have a transformational spiritual experience and, and a profound and mature one. And that it took me until I was, you know, in my 40s to realize that that message was divisive and untrue and that I had been all along having deep, profound, transformational experiences in multiple sacred spaces and religious traditions, and that that is the way my soul happens to be built, as many of you who are listening can resonate with, that your heart has always responded to the wisdom, to the nectar across the the spiritual landscape, and that you're incapable of just picking one place to the exclusion of any of the others, that that's just temperamentally how some of us 
are. I mean, I like to think it's evolution, too, that we're be evolving beyond these strict parameters of religious institutions and that our hearts are naturally, our souls are naturally opening and responding to the presence of the sacred everywhere. Because I happen to feel, Justine, and I, I'd be curious to see if you agree that the existing religious structures, which are almost entirely patriarchal, are crumbling anyway. And attempting to prop them up right now is not only futile, but kind of unattractive. <laughs> <laughs> that what's happening is this much more expansive, inclusive, um, spiritual orientation that many of us have. It's kind of like gender fluidity. Yes. This is the direction that our souls are going in. I'm here with Mirabai Starr. She is the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, mirabystar.com. And she spells her name Mirabai, M-I-R-A-B-A-I, Mirabai Star, S-T-A-R-R, mirabystar.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Mirabai Starr. She's the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. And we were just talking about tapping into the many, many different wisdom traditions and tapping into that deep wisdom that is contained within them all and having this multiplicity of expressions, which is so wonderful. And I can think of one thing that maybe is important in all of them. You talk about this a little bit in your book, and I love the way you express it, because it comes from a Buddhist perspective, but you take it far beyond that. And this is the three jewels that are important in any of our spiritual expression, and that's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And in Buddhism, that means certain things. But you're taking it more into that feminine place, and I'd love for you to describe what that means in a feminine perspective. Mm, I think that's what I'm doing with, with throughout the book, by the way, as I'm looking at these classic wisdom teachings that are also classically masculine through a feminine lens. And like, why not? You know, it's the sky has not fallen yet as I've dared to, to question and reframe these established wisdom teachings. So that's one of my favorites. Um, so I'm so glad you brought it up. The triple gem or the three jewels, which is taking refuge in Buddhism. It's the refuge vow. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It's a very serious vow. But what if we look at it through the lens of the feminine, not so much as I promise to do this with my, you know, grim determination, but rather 
I take refuge, which is what the vow says. So I take refuge in the Buddha. What does that mean through the lens of the feminine? It means looking to all of these exemplars. Like you spoke about the, the contemporary women that I speak of in the book. To me, they're exemplars of the, wis- of the way, of the beauty way, of the wisdom way, of the way of awakening and service that I hope is the path that we're all on here. And so look to those women exemplars across the spiritual traditions, living and no longer living, um, embodied or archetypes and goddess beings. Who are the exemplars of the path that we're walking? Uh, so that's taking refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha in the form of all these women. What is it to take refuge in the Dharma through the lens of the feminine? That is to look for, and it's not always easy to find, the wisdom teachings of the feminine across, again, across the spiritual traditions. They're buried very intentionally, but they are there. How do we excavate those wisdom teachings and look to the teachings of the feminine, whether it's the the wisdom of Shabbat in the Jewish tradition as the day of rest, of holy rest and renewal. And that Shabbat itself in the Jewish wisdom teachings is feminine. It, she is the Shekhinah, the indwelling feminine presence who comes and fills our souls on Shabbat and lives in exile the rest of the time. And my interest there, again, is questioning everything. Like, Why? Does the Shekhinah have to live in exile? Why can't we reclaim her so that she is with us, Im- embodied in our human experience all the time? So taking refuge in the Dharma means to look at these wisdom teachings through the lens of the feminine, excavate them, bring them out, share them. To take refuge in the Sangha, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh said famously, the next Buddha will be the Sangha. You know, so many religions have this sort of second coming notion that we're waiting for the Messiah, we're waiting for Maitreya Buddha, we're waiting for these these beings to come along and, and rescue us. And so what about, we are the ones we've been waiting for, as the Hopi prophecy says. So to take refuge in the Sangha is to take refuge, to rest in the interbeing that we belong to, in the community of each other. And to me, that's the essence of the feminine. Is she builds community. She recognizes everybody as an essential nexus in that web of interbeing. The, the whole hierarchical uh, model of a guru dispensing his his spiritual goodies to the poor, hungry slobs below is over. The way of the feminine is that we all have have a cup of elixir to bring to the table of human awakening and and service. Because to me, those two things are intertwined. Well, I can think of a wonderful example of what you're talking about. In the 2017 inauguration of the outcome of the 2016 election in the U.S. The day after that, I mean, we all were, were thinking, okay, if we, here in the U.S., if there's a woman president in the White House, all is safe. The feminine is safe, and it's all going to happen. And then that didn't happen. But what did happen was hundreds of thousands of millions of women and men and householders and babies and got out in the street and expressed together that that longing to be another way. We were all taking responsibility, in other yes. words, for manifesting the feminine 
and the togetherness. It was so wonderful. I was in Oakland at the march, and there were thousands of people, and there was not one incident of anything that was untoward or that was violent in any way. Everyone was so kind and filled with goodness and love and song and celebration together. I I, I just get chills thinking about it. And that was a blessing. Mm. So did did could could you see that it wasn't like depending on the one avatar, the one exactly. woman that would take us someplace, but that we're all doing it together. That's a perfect example, Justine, of this this phenomenon. If I, I think I say in the in the very introduction to this book something about the the feminine is the earth is breaking open and the feminine is spilling out. Um, I say it right here. The secret is out. The celebration is overflowing its banks. The joy is becoming too great to contain. The pain has grown too urgent to ignore. The earth is cracking open, and the women are rising from our hiding places and spilling onto the streets, lifting the suffering into our arms, demanding justice from the tyrants, pushing on the patriarchy and activating a paradigm shift such as the world has never seen. And we're doing it through love. You're absolutely right. And everywhere I go with this book, which has just come out, what I'm finding is that it's not about Mirabai Star has a new book out proclaiming that, you know, the feminine mystics are the answer to moving, fixing the problems of the world. It's about community. Everywhere I go, I recognize that this book is just an expression of a discourse that is happening everywhere. And so there's the sense of ownership around Wild Mercy that has been incredibly invigorating for me. It's about us. And this is one of the circles where women are coming together and remembering that to, only together can we rise to the call to mend the broken world. And that reminds me, you talk about activism in the book. The erroneous way we have done it in the past and maybe still a little bit now, and we need to guard against, is like setting up the perpetrator and the victim. Yeah. And you use a word, otherizing, making the other wrong, and, oh, they did it wrong, and we're going to blame them, and, and then we take that on, oh, we're the victim. And it just, you're saying that we need to do it a different way. Yeah. The feminine is, is a, it's different from that. That's right. And this is not the easy because it's easy. We want to blame someone for for polluting the river and and doing this and that. And but there's another way to to work with it. Right, and I think it's it it's definitely the natural way of the feminine. And, and I use that word guardedly and and remind listeners that when I talk about the natural way of the feminine, I'm talking about the feminine in all of us, people of all genders, is to connect and relate first. That the feminine, rather than analytically um, uh, decide and determine what's broken and what needs to be fixed and how, it, you know, that's a very, that mechanistic view is very masculine. The feminine actually first allows her heart to open to the pain of the world, to the to the broken climate, and to the suffering of the human family and the animal family and Mother Earth herself. And then, by actually allowing ourselves to feel the pain of the world in the cells of our own body, which is a very feminine response, our container is often shattered through that painful encounter with reality. And then that shattered container becomes 
more boundless. It has it it ends up with a boundless capacity to then hold the pain of the world and to also hold the ambiguity of the world. That it's not all this or that. I mean, I personally encounter this, as many of you do. Um, I have a child who's who's forty, just turned forty, and she has taken a very different social path than I have and political path. And she lives in a very small town in America, married to a, a guy who's like an NRA advocate. That is kind of the opposite of my political values. And yet when I go and visit them, the love is so strong that it just I, it brings me to tears and them too. The love between us, the love they have for their family and their little small community and the, our political values just dissolve. They have, it's just about the human connection between us. And I believe that every time I show up and don't act like a self-righteous liberal, but act like a mom and grandma and just love these people up, Peace on earth is unfolding in our midst. And it's not enough, but it counts. Well, that reminds me of a story you tell of Christine, who's this PhD, very learned person, and she's teaching in a Christian school, and she has these bratty boys that are just giving her a bad, bad time. And she could just really slam them if she wanted to. But she took a different path. Do you recall that path that yes. she took and how she turned that around? Yes, it's Christina Cleveland. By the way, check her out. She is a theologian, a young African-American theologian who is doing really radical, wonderful work. But this was early in her teaching career. And so she was a black woman in a, like a fundamentalist Christian white school and these young men were totally giving her a hard time just challenging everything she said and it was very irritating i'm sure but what she decided to do she was just she had just learned about the term namaste i honor the light within you and even though she was a christian she took this this beautiful hindu phrase a sanskrit phrase namaste i honor the light within you and she kind of turned it inside her own soul to a more judeo christian friendly version of i i see the light in of god in me sees the light of god in you or something like that and she decided that every time those guys would do their thing in the classroom she would pause and silently send them love the, the light of or the love of god in me um, bows to the love of God. And I can't remember how it is, but it's in the book. Yeah. Um, something like that. And just the pause, the converting it into love in her heart when you're right, absolutely intellectually, uh, she could have totally just excoriated them. But she didn't. She brought it down into the heart, sent them love. And little by little, over the course of the semester, it completely disarmed them so that by the end of the semester, they, they were her buddies, they were her advocates, and they had huge openings in their own sociopolitical awareness. I'm here with Mirabai Starr. She is the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mirabai Starr, and she is the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. And Mirabai, I'd love uh, for you to give a flavor of your writing and on a certain subject that you call Householder Yoga. And if you could just do a little bit of a reading from from Householder Yoga for our listeners. Mm, sure. See if any of you relate to this. I suspect you might. Give me a cave in the Himalayas with no heat aside from a smoky fire pit. Only the food brought to me by those willing to hike up the mountains and nothing to do all day but meditate and chant and read the sacred scriptures. Such a sadhana or spiritual practice has got to be easier than raising a child, living with her other parent, and trying to make a harmonious home. What person on a spiritual path who also has a family has not had this thought? Welcome to Householder Yoga. If yoga means path to union with God, then hooking up with a life partner and having kids together can be as valid and certainly as rigorous as living in an ashram engaged in spiritual discipline all day and into the night, and as transformational. Every culture and religious tradition controlled by men has placed higher importance on scriptural study and ritual observance than on feeding babies and cleaning up after them. Women have internalized our own devaluation. No wonder many women with the privilege of making the choice are choosing not to have children. Child rearing is arguably the most difficult path possible, a hero's journey that leads us on harrowing adventures, but for which we receive almost no credit. So, given that being a parent is such a challenging and unglamorous enterprise, why bother? Because sentient beings are made to. Most of us are anyway. We're biologically, socially, and spiritually programmed to connect with one another and create new humans. And we are perfectly designed to care for them. The mistakes we make are part of the package. Our fears for their well-being are impossible to circumvent. We are bound to stumble through the experience of being someone's mom, just as our mothers fumbled through their own motherly missions. Maybe with more awareness than they did, but not with any more certainty. So that was so well said, and any comment that you might have on that, because throughout the book, you, it always comes back to that. What, what about the embodiment, the practicality of our spiritual practice? It's not just, as you say, on the mountaintop or in a cave, but it's in the marketplace, it's in the family, it's doing the dishes. Yeah. So th this book is, is not about different goddesses or different spiritual traditions chapter by chapter. This book, every chapter, deals with some aspect of, of everyday life, you know, like mothering, like sexuality, creativity, stewardship of the earth, forgiveness and reconciliation, death and dying, all of the things that, that as human beings, especially feminine human beings, um, we not only deal with, but in which we find the presence of the sacred. So for me, the primary practice is about learning to be present with things as they are. And there are spiritual technologies available to us across the spiritual traditions that um, help us to cultivate that depth and degree of mindful, heartful presence in everything we do. So sometimes we need to actually sit on the cushion or engage in, in sacred chanting or other other spiritual methodologies that 
raise the consciousness and open the heart, not in order to get up and out of this world, but precisely so that then we can take that loving awareness, as Ramdas says, into the heart of the world and and infuse everything that we do with that spirit of of love and devotion and and holy presence. So that's where the line between action and contemplation dissolves and between personal spiritual experience and tikkun olam, to use the Hebrew term of repairing the world, that that um, prophetic urge to be present to the web of interbeing and participate with all our hearts in mending it. You have studied and become a, a bereavement counselor. And you have gone through just your own tremendous bereavement with your daughter Jenny, with your brother died when you were very young and he was young. And you just, uh, you've, you've experienced a lot of death and dying directly in your life. And you tell a story about the two Kates, and these mm-hmm. are, are two women that also have lost daughters. And what I love about the story that you tell and the advice that you give, and this is a warning to all of us that we think we can help someone else because we've gone through this same thing. What is your advice about how we should be with another as they are going through grief or bereavement? Mm. Yes, it's such a wonderful and important question. So that section of the book, um, it's my favorite title of the whole book of a section, and I call it, I Will Be Demeter and You Be Persephone. It's like the, we make these soul agreements that we never would have made with our rational minds to to enter into these harrowing experiences like the loss of a child. Um, and in that section, I speak about two women that I know and love named Kate, both of whom lost their daughters in tragic accidents, uh, one through murder, the other was, was run over by a car while riding her bicycle. And I thought, and they thought, okay, I've been through this. Mirabai's been through this and she can be a resource to me. I can be a resource to them. I already had studied grief counseling and had a certificate. But there is a way in which the the only thing we can do in the presence of unbearable anguish is hold loving witness, a space of loving witness for that person and not think we know. And to me, Justine, that is the feminine way is the way of unknowing, not of figuring it out and telling everybody else the way it is, but about being with things as they are, opening to those liminal spaces that are deeply feminine spaces, being willing to abide in ambiguity and, and live the mystery in community. And that's what we can do with people when they're grieving. And most of us have been through tremendous losses, you know, unbearable losses that we've managed to bear. Some maybe not as dramatic as losing a child like mine, but many of you listening are part of that club and you know how it is impossible and yet somehow we do. But what we wanted, what we longed for when when these losses happened to us was someone who wasn't afraid of the fire of our pain and could sit beside that blaze with us, sit in the fire with us without imposing their own ideas about it and certainly not telling us about the time their dog died, you know, and how they understand. I think that that's such an important point. 
It's not easy to do because when we see someone else in grief, we want to go just rush in and embrace them and, and change their bereavement. But what you're saying, the stronger thing to do, the more rooted thing to do, is to take a deep breath and to trust their bereavement. Yes, beautifully said, Justine. And yes, we want to rush in and, and fix them or help them or change them, but we also want to run away. That's a, also a really common response. And, the, and it's more of a masculine response, like get me away from these messy human experiences and feelings. But the, the true feminine response is, is just as you say, to take a breath and, and enter and, and just hold a space of loving witness to be with them. That's what we crave when we're, when we're shattered. I think that maybe women know this a bit more easily than men. It's a little easier for us to embody. I'm going to say this. Because of two things, either childbirth Mm -hmm. that we've gone through, and if we haven't gone through that as women, we've gone through menstruation every month. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of letting go. That's just giving in. There's nothing we can do about it. We just give in to it. And, and that helps. I think that that helps us to sort of be there in whatever is happening for however long it's happening. Yes, and the men I know who are really good at this, and I do know some, famous and not so famous, um, have that feminine heart that, that also is willing to just be in the unknowingness and the uncontrollability of death and grief. And that's what we're being asked and called upon, even now at this time of great death and grief yes. in, on a worldwide s- scale. Yes. So to, to be there and to hold it, as you say, the paradox, and this is not easier. And, and so you give us lots of advice of how to sit on the cushion, do the practice, but then bring it into the daily life. And if there's anything else that you want to add to that? Mm, well, uh, no, I, I mean, I, yeah, I think that there is a death going on globally. Um, who knows what's going to happen with the environment? And also with the social structures, the existing kind of masculine paradigm social social structures, there is a crumbling, there is a there is a disintegrating of what we have come to depend on. And maybe our task, as Andrew Harvey actually so beautifully says, is to be the midwives of this death and the the inevitable resurrection or rebirth that will come from it. Mirabai, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Thank you. It is such a joy to have this deep history with you and, and with the spirit of Michael Toms, thank who is you. with us. Oh, thank you. That feels so delicious. I've been speaking with Mirabai Starr. She's the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, Mirabai Starr, M-I-R-A-B-A-I, Star, S-T-A-R-R, MirabaiStar.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3672. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.